Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to the May 25th, 2022 QPSC. Um, let's go into a, right into a roll call, Madam Clerk. Uh, Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Esteen is excused and Trustee Jensen. Here. We do have a quorum. Thank you. All right, audience, um, just, a, just a little bit of a heads up. We're gonna be doing calling some audibles this evening. Um, we're going to lose quorum from one of our due to loss one of our trustees at around 6:15. So I'm going to do a little bit of uh, of moving uh, some of the agenda items uh, so we can vote on the appropriate things. We'll um, uh, we'll uh, as soon as we have all our chiefs of staff in the room, we'll need to go into closed session to approve credentialing. That's something that we sort of have to do. That will probably take five or ten minutes. So that will occur as soon as uh, we have a full roster of our chiefs of staff to do that. Nonetheless, we'll just keep going forward with the meeting. I do wanna give a little bit of heads up uh, to, um, uh, to item E, uh, that's discussion of pot and potential action of the True North metric dashboard. I see uh, uh, Dr. Gupta is in the room and Annette Johnson's in the room. Uh, just as a heads up, I think there's a potential because that's a potential action item to move that forward. I hope that doesn't uh, deeply inconvenience you. And if, if we can't do that, we can adapt otherwise if we're not making a vote. So with that, that's sort of the heads up on tonight's meeting. Let's open up with the purpose of the QPSC. The QPSC is established to provide oversight and leadership for medical staff credentialing, review of organizational policies, and monitoring of organizational quality assurance, performance improvement, and safety programs. The QPSC is charged with continuing the practice of direct communication with medical staff leaders on issues of clinical operations and patient care. That's our purpose. Madam Clerk, um, uh, is there any public comment set up here? I don't have any. Yes, ma'am. Okay. With that, I'm going to skip the QPSC chairs uh, item A and go right into consent agenda uh, given uh, the quorum issues I discussed. Trustees, uh, the consent agenda is before you. Uh, before entertaining a motion to approve the entirety of the items, B1, B2, and B3, are there any items that need to be removed for discussion? Trustee Jensen, Trustee Banerjee, anything that uh, needs to be re removed? Not for me. No, me. I'm okay. okay, can I entertain a motion, please? Move approval of consent. I'll second. I'll second. Madam Clerk, roll call. All right. Um, Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. And Trustee Jensen. Aye. The motion passes. Thank you. Okay. All right. So that's one of the uh, two items that we need to get done. I still see that we don't have a full room available for um, closed session. So I'll, I'll, I'll backtrack and I'll go to item A. This is the QPSC chair's article. The article chosen was entitled Four Types of Healthcare Reporting Dashboards. Uh, to copy the discussion on the article itself. It just talks about why we have dashboards. They help us forecast, they help remind us where we are and the like. Um, that's important framework for part of the discussion we're gonna be having this evening. I actually want, uh, 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 I'll, I'll qu quickly revisit what I'm saying and, and uh, council and Madam Clerk, if you'll just let us know when we have the room available for, for um, closed session. The article is entitled Four Types of Healthcare Reporting Dashboards to Copy. I selected this article last week um, because 
Today, we're going to be hearing a presentation from, uh, from, from our teams about proposals for dashboard items for the year. It's a, it's a fundamental, fundamental article on why we have dashboards. What's their purpose? They help us examine where we are, project where we want to go, and task management. Um, I, I did want to talk about that, but, but given yesterday, I don't want to talk about that anymore. So yesterday, 21 people were killed and 17 wounded in an attack on an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. 19 of those 21 killed were children, elementary school children. And uh, uh, I'm a Texan. And uh, actually, I, 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 have, I, I went to college with some people from Uvalde. So that sort of struck a chord with me. Warriors coach Steve Kerr in the pregame, and people are like, who cares about a, a coach? I actually regard Coach Kerr as an, a, an intellectual. And as a side note, Coach Kerr's father, Malcolm, was actually killed in gun violence. Um, so that's a, another piece of attention I share. My mother was killed in gun violence. So, so gun violence means a lot to me as well. He said this, and I just want to quote him and then sort of open this up to discussion. For those of you who saw the, the feed on it, he was pretty passionate about it. Coach Kerr was pretty, yeah. He said, when are we gonna do something? I'm tired. I'm so tired of getting up here and offering condolences to the devastated families that are out there. I'm tired of the moments of silence, enough. So trustees and staff, I ask you, when are we going to do something here in this organization? We've over the past years uh, had discussions about uh, statements or resolutions on, on gun violence. We, we are uh, a receiving center for as much gun violence as there probably is in any county hospital in this country. So I just wanted to talk about that. And I don't even know where we're going on that, but uh, it was, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's yet another moment uh, for us in this country. So trustees, I'll open it up. And if anyone wants to, to, to say anything, uh, I'll give them their, their due. Pat, um, this afternoon, uh, I too was um, spending time thinking about the, the consequences of the action of one person in Texas and the responses from people in Texas and people, leader, uh, legislative leaders elsewhere. But um, despite that, or regardless of that, it, it, no one really addressed, none of the leaders pointed out except for, um, well, that I, that I heard that this is a public health crisis, that gun violence is a public health crisis, that we were public health leaders here in Alameda County in California in a state that, that is concerned and, and changes the law to address gun violence, but we're, we still see it. And we're, we're a state that, that tries um, to pass laws to eliminate access to guns for for citizens who have mental health problems, citizens who are angry at other citizens, just to limit it to reasonable requirements. And other other states don't do the same thing. And so what I what I came to came to acknowledge and came to understand and and um, what the, the the response is that we need to make as a country, in my opinion, is to treat gun violence like a public health problem to recognize that children who were at, from the 30s to the 2000s who were killed mainly the, the the accidental cause of death for children was 
automobile accidents and automobile safety, we changed those automobiles. We made safety belts and um, car seats and those types of things mandatory. And we ticketed people who didn't have those things in their car and didn't comply with the law. And so I'm not sure why there are seem to be so many leaders in Congress at least and, and in some states that are willing to accept that children die by gun violence and it's something that we're gonna just let happen. But I think as public health leaders and um, public health caregivers, we in Alameda Health System recognize that. And we, I know that in our own personal advocacy and in the advocacy of the organization, we're trying to do something about it. Thank you, Trustee Johnson. Trustee Banerjee, then Mr. Jackson. Jack, I'm so sorry to hear about your mother's passing. And um, so, you know, and for so all who've been touched by gun violence again. Mm -hmm. And I think I would um, go, uh, you know, board resolution or not. I think there are so many um, actions already happening, like at the state level, at the local level, at the federal level, that one of the things that we need to do is kind of get the supports and helps that we want, but as, because it's a public health crisis and as a county hospital, we see ourselves in, in that space of civic participation and our civic action as well. And I think it bodes well to say that if this was diabetes prevention or something, we'd be doing that. So this is not political, it doesn't matter. They hit people of all stripes, all colors and all political affiliations and so, find places where, you know, parent of small children. I, we, I, we think about the 19 um, little ones who lost, but I think about the um, child, the children who've been left without a mother or, a, or, or, or even they, like for the adults who've, who've died, like they are forever, their families are forever changed and their little ones will not have a parent. Um, and so what there are just many choice points for us to be doing within the walls of our system and outside. And I would hope that we take advantage and feel the urgency to use every avenue of our in our spheres of influence to stop this. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee, and I, I, I agree with you. We're, we're, we're a healthcare board. Um, you know, what are our spheres of influence? I think it's exploring those. We're an organization, we're a healthcare organization. We're a $1.1 billion organization. We do carry some weight, uh, at, at least locally and perhaps regionally, and hopefully soon nationally. Uh, so I think that, uh, I think we have opportunity to kind of uh, use our voice in, in better way. And I think one of the things that it's so, Connected to some of the structural drivers too, we have like become the weaponized othering, like who is the other, who is the, you know, um, amongst us, and it changes from context to context, but this is a very, um, for folks who are radicalized, like it's never a lone wolf, it is spaces where they are being pumped up to be able to feel this kind of anger, to be able to have these outlets. So it might show up in different ways and in different settings, whether it's in the in a church 
or in a grocery store, or in this case, in a school, but some of the um, roots are come from that space of like deep hate and othering. So, um, and like we say, it can happen in a nail salon, it can happen yeah. in every, every sphere. Mr. Jackson, sir, good evening. Good evening, Chair Bouquet and trustees and assembled uh, staff and colleagues. Um, not, words are inadequate sometimes, and I think this is one of those times, but I really want to just express my appreciation for what Trustee Jensen said in regards to public health, because I really think that's the lens that I'd like to approach this from, because this is hyper-partisan, and it really does um, divide people along political lines, or it can, and I think it's important that we use our position as a, you know, a, a health care leader in this industry, you said $1.1 billion plus of business that we do, the people that, you know, trust us with their care. And that's the, the lens through which I think we can approach this and really affect meaningful change. And so uh, I'm committed to that. Thank you. Thank you, James. Any other commentary? Thank you for everyone listening. And we can all do better. We can do more. Indeed. I'm going to close out item A for right now. Um, Madam Clerk, do we have what, what we need to and council to go into closed? We don't have Satira just yet, Got I it. believe. Okay, um, so that's okay. We'll, we'll adapt here. Uh, Dr. Gupta, sorry to uh, make a potential uh, adaptation. So like, uh, is it possible, Dr. Gupta? Hi, how are you? Is it possible to move your presentation up? I know you were expecting this to go in about an hour. It, I think so. Let me just, I see Annette. So yes, I think we're okay. ready to rock and roll if you are. Uh, that, I, I really appreciate the adaptation because we, we're, we're going to lose our, our quorum in about uh, 25 minutes or so. And, and this is item E, all. It's called Approval of the True North Metric Dashboard Quality Metrics for FY22-23. Chair Bouquet, um, I'm yes. sorry to interrupt you there. Uh, so uh, Satira is not going to be able to join us tonight. Okay. So we're going to have to go in without okay. her. So if so, you so want to go now or so after. Actually, so uh, Dr. Gupta, if you will just pre-game pre yourself, and I know how tight you always are on your presentations, we're going to go into close. I'm anticipating like five minutes. Then we're going to come back and, if, and, and we'll let you and Annette kind of guide us through um, where, where we're going to sit with True North Metric dashboard. Is that acceptable? That sounds great. Okay. Apologies for the last second. Uh, no problem. All right, uh, council and clerk, if you'll take us to close, please. Thank you. The board will now, the quality committee of the board will now go into closed session to consider those items as stated on the agenda. Audience, we anticipate less than, less than 10 minutes, hopefully quicker. Hi everyone, thank you for tolerating, tolerating that adaptation. We're back to the May 25th, 2022 QPSC. We just came out of closed session, council. The quality committee of the board met in closed session to approve the medical staff reports. The committee took no other action. Okay, thank you, council. So with that, we're, we're making further adaptations of our board and uh, of our board agenda today, because again, we wanna maintain quorum as long as we can. So the only other uh, potential action item on our, our uh, agenda this evening is approval of the True North Metric Dashboard uh, for 
We have this evening, Dr. Neha Gupta, who's our medical director of value-based care. And of course, Annette Johnson, our quality analytics director. They're gonna lead us through this and, and determine whether we need to make a vote or not. Dr. Gupta, Ms. Johnson, know that trustee Jensen probably has till around 6, 8, 6, 10, uh, to, but, uh, as a little bit of wiggle and then five minutes. So if you could somehow get us through uh, your, your presentation by in about 15 minutes, and then we can talk about whether we need to make an action item. Is that acceptable? I think we can, I think we can do that and feel free to give us a time check. Yes, um, ma'am. If, if you feel like things are not moving as quickly as, 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 you, as they should. Got it. You guys are always complete. So we, 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 we're doing the tension between complete and fast. <laughs> um, well, is it okay if I take the screen? The show is yours. Um, so I will get started. For those who don't know me, my name is Neha Gupta, and I am the Medical Director of Value-Based Care. Um, and Annette and I will be walking you through uh, our proposal for the True North Metric dashboard for this next fiscal year. Uh, just a quick summary, um, under the guidance of Dr. Torna Bene, uh, we assembled a multidisciplinary team to evaluate our current state True North Metric dashboard and plan for fiscal year 23. Uh, the team identified significant opportunities to improve the dashboard's understandability patient-centeredness and inclusiveness. You'll see in the draft dashboard, a mix of metrics from previous years, modifications from previous years and new metrics. You'll also see that equity has been added as a column touching all metrics rather than a row representing an isolated project. And then importantly, due to the timeline that these dashboards are usually approved by the board, we consider this proposal a bridge um, the new strategic plan was approved in parallel and hence does not directly reflect many of the items that are uh, laid out in the strategic plan. One alternative that we will discuss near the end of this discussion is whether or not we should delay the implementation of the new fiscal year 23 dashboard by a few months and continue the previous dashboard in the interim to allow further alignment with the strategic plan. Um, so this is the group that, that Dr. Torna Bene assembled. Um, and we, we will share with you a statement of purpose for the True North Metric Dashboard, which to our knowledge has not existed before. And we've refined and added some guiding principles that we use to drive metric selection. We each developed our dream dashboards, which you will not see today, um, but we started with our dream state and then we settled on something that we all could live with and present to you all. I'll hand it over to Annette to walk us through some of that discussion. This is our, uh, just to refresh your mind, this is our current True North Metric dashboard. You can see that we have our metrics arranged by pillar, and we also um, attribute our metrics to uh, the steep criteria. We list our metrics, we conclude baselines from the previous fiscal year. We have our goals, as well as the most recent month performance and the year to date. We then present our data over time with the blue line representing the uh, benchmark to most typically the, the 50th percentile for the benchmark group that we have selected. <laughs> Next slide. So when we looked at this dashboard, we saw some real opportunities to make it more resonant with our staff and our and the and the public that reviewed this dashboard a lot of times it's very difficult for um, our patients and the public to understand what a ratio is it's, uh, many of our metrics are based on ratio so we wanted to make it much more resident um, 
ring true for our patients and, and mission driven. And then we also saw that we weren't really being as, we were mostly focused on the inpatient med surge acute, and we wanted to expand our metrics to include post-acute and behavioral health. Um, we wanted to make steep more apparent. And then of course, we really wanted to make sure that we were incorporating equity into our measurement plan. Um, and so with all of that, we put together a statement of purpose, which um, we, we decided it was important to agree on because down the road, there might be some disagreements about this metric or that metric. And then when you come back to our statement of purpose, it helps us make a decision. So we felt that the True North metric dashboard serves as a pulse check for the board of trustees, our staff, and our community, including our patients, to evaluate how AHS is performing regarding AHS's strategic priorities in order to become ultimately the number one safety net health system in the country. I'll pause for a moment and see if anyone has any feedback about that statement of purpose. Otherwise, I'll charge ahead. Trustees, any comments on, on the presentation thus far and specifically, if you will, principles? Yeah, I know we have to rush, but this is this explicit is so, so good. Thank you. Uh, my only comment is that uh, as uh, uh, Dr. Chair and um, leadership is aware that yesterday the Board of Supervisors basically um, eliminated some of the oversight responsibilities of the Board of Trustees. But one thing that they that remains is quality. Uh, that remains uh, one of the purviews of this board. And I think this is very well said, very the True North dashboard. And I appreciate the way that it is um, that, it, that it's outlined here. I think that gives us a good way to start as the governance changes take place. And I'll just, I'll just uh, jump on here and I'll say what, what, what is readily apparent to me in the, some uh, pre-meetings is how extraordinarily thoughtful this team has been in setting, setting this, the, the, the principles. And then, uh, as I say, once you've agreed on principles, it's easier to kind of develop your plan. So they've done, I, I agree with both of you. I think they've done a great job on this. And I'll just add, it matters who's in the room and who informed this. So. Great team. Thank you. Um, so moving on to the specific guiding principles that we determined, many of you have seen several of these items carried over from last year's discussion. There are a few items that we added based on that statement of uh, purpose. The first is accessibility. We really felt like metrics needed to be understandable to a layperson. Um, even though there is a trade-off between accessibility and benchmarkability. Um, we felt very strongly um, in including equity on the dashboard and that all metrics should ultimately be stratified by race and ethnicity to identify current and future equity gaps. Um, and we wanted more inclusivity, that we wanted inclusion of all AHS care settings when possible and appropriate. Um, with that, I will hand it over to Annette to walk us through some of the specific metrics we're recommending for this year. So we're proposing to replace our hospital acquired infection index and that sort of, um, and, and, and expand our uh, measurement of harm to not only include our hospital acquired infections, but also um, our prevalence of pressure ulcers and falls, as these are from my harm monitoring opportunities across the organization that we can work to improve. And the nice part about this expansion is it allows us to pull in measurement from 
post-acute as well as um, behavioral health, so that we're represent we're really driving down harm across the entirety of the system. And then we wanted to add, um, add hospital hand washing as a new metric this year because it is it is this last two years, if anything, has proven how absolutely critical hand hygiene is to preventing the spread of infection and protecting all of us, both patients and staff in the environment. Um, we're going to retain our um, primary or primary care and specialty care metrics. The only thing is we're going to slightly rebrand them to really talk about the intent of the measure rather than the technical name. We want it, this measure really measures how long does the do most patients have to wait from the time that they request an appointment to the time that they get it? So we're going to rebrand it to, to express the intent rather than the technical name. We're going to continue our all-cause readmissions, and then we're proposing removing the, the percent of quit metrics on target from the quality bucket and moving that over to the sustainability um, pillar uh, so that we can then focus in on, an, on the value, not only the value, this allows us to not only look at the, are we making sure that we're in a position to collect and redeem the dollars associated with QIP, but we can then also focus on the, the value to our patients um, in the, the population health management by looking at a health maintenance measure that really measures how many of, of the QIP uh, preventative health screenings are we completing for our patients um, as an absolute rate. And then we're going to continue to look at our ED uh, waiting times, um, but we're proposing removing our length of stay metrics. And the reason here is that we know that length of stay is a valuable metric, but we want to move that to the operations board and then hold the ED metric here as sort of a, again, that pulse check that the target of the strategy we're aiming for, the truth market, as you know, when patients, can we get patients in the door? It's a real good um, alarm bell as to whether we're having a good throughput in the system. And then when it comes down to uh, patient-centeredness, we are proposing an index measure that looks at um, the likelihood to recommend. All of our patient experience surveys, whether there are traditional HCAPs inpatient that you're familiar with, our ambulatory CGCAP surgery, but also our newer surgeries, surveys like radiology, um, behavioral health, outpatient surgery, dental, have a question on them that asks, would they recommend us to another patient? So we wanted to create an index so we could say how, what percentage of patients would recommend us? And so I think it's a very meaningful metric and it rings true to the, um, to the lay person as well as the staff. And then uh, while we're taking a general approach there, we wanted to also make sure we stay focused on the, yes, Dr. Mark? Well, I can wait till you're done in that. Okay. <laughs> I just got, I just have a question on this section here. Okay. And then for the um, nursing communication metric, we want, or for HCAPs, we want to stay focused on HCAPs because of its, its in high prevalence importance for, you know, the med surge of uh, patients and also its prevalence in our public reporting. We, we want to focus in on nursing communication because that is sort of the um, overall driver of overall satisfaction in the medicine, in the inpatient acute setting. And then of course, as we mentioned earlier, we are going to put equity as a, rather than a single metric, a pillar in which we certify all of our measures by. Um, and then we can go to the next slide. Um, Actually, uh, Annette, yeah. would, you, would you mind leaving it on the, oh, sorry, okay. there's more of course, but those are not the quality related ones. 
if we could go to Mr. Fratsky's question on this and then yeah, thank, you thank you, Trustee Bouquet. Um, Annette, are these um, patient-centeredness metrics expressed in percentile rankings versus top box score? The index would need to be in the top box score um, in order to make it roll up as we're looking at multiple service service lines, but we could definitely do the nurse communication as a percentile rank. And then any drill down dashboards that would come come down from the index would also, we would also include the bench, the percentile as well as the top box. And that can you can you reorient our audience to the particulars of what a top box score is versus versus what are the relative merits of a top box score versus this percentile? So a top box score, a top box score is the number of the percentage of people that gave you the highest ranking on the scale for that particular question in the patient experience score. Yeah. So for example, in the past, we've looked at um, likeliness to recommend the hospital on the scale from one to 10 with nine or 10 being the top box, right? And then that is, I like to think of that as um, to make a metaphor, your top box is your time in a race, right? And your percentile is your where where that time places you in competition to everyone else. Yes, right. That's a great analogy. So it's funny, you know, and on on the top box score on nine and ten, if we get a whole slew of eights, we don't get credit for that if we're from a top box met methodology, which is a little bit painful as we're coming along the way. So I I, I love I love your analogy, uh, Mr. Frasky. Did you get your questions answered, sir? Yes, I was glad to hear percentile ranking. Thank you. Yeah, I was too, sir, because I think I, I think it helps us measure. It, it, it's a little humbling when you're, you're not getting all nines and tens, and actually you think you're doing a, a pretty good job, and I think we are doing that. So trustees, just to orient, to orient you to this very nice slide, on the far left column is pillar. This used to have access, patient experience, and quality. Now we know based on our strategic plan, it has quality care. The next column over is steep, so they've selected metrics which dominate over each of these respective domains. And then on the metric, the grays are the recommendation to remove. Uh, and, and, and again, removing it from the dashboard, of course this team is still tracking this data. And this data is feeding a whole bunch of other metrics, but we had to be selective. The nine ones in white are their recommendations uh, based on this. So. Uh, what I want to be emphatic on, which I think you guys already know, I, I apologize if this is redundant. The team is, of course, still tracking all of this stuff. It's just how it rolls up. It could be for, perhaps available to you in a question format. Hey, Annette, can you tell me what ODE uh, observed to expect it is? Of course, you'll have that data. But this is sort of our dashboard to keep us, if you will, uh, moving forward. So do we have like two things to answer? One is do we accept this dashboard? Two is, do we use this as a bridge or do we keep to the uh, current dashboard till you align this with the strategic plan? Are these like the two I, the two answers you would like to have? Wow, well, uh, Neha, give me one second. Can Kenny, so sharp of you, that sort of cutting next, cutting to the chase, which I'm gonna help us out. Annette, will you go to the next slide? This slide uh, uh, team is, is for uh, metrics which are important, but not necessarily the quality metrics. I think these are important discussions and concepts for us as general trustees over, overlooking the enterprise. But today I'm gonna try to keep us focused on the quality items. 
being recommended, but these are for consideration for other dashboards amongst the other three pillars. Annette, if you don't mind. Yeah. Uh, now I'll let you, I'll let you, uh, Annette and, and Neha, if you'll introduce us through Dr. To Trustee Banerjee's question. Uh, we're at 6.08 and I probably only have Trustee Jensen for about 10 more. Is that right, Trustee Jensen? 6.20? Yeah, 20 Okay. Tell us what you want us to do. <laughs> well, why don't I, um, I'll sum it to say, this is the overall proposed you know, bridge dashboard as Trustee Banerjee um, mentioned. However, there are a few gaps that we identified in that draft that we just proposed to you. The first is that you don't see equity there. And the second is that there are many elements of the strategic plan that are not represented on that dashboard, particularly the focus on the expansion of specialty care, improvement in trust and reputation among staff, and increased connection with our community. So two of those pillars that we did not address um, in, the, in the previous conversation and belong to the other pillars. I'll walk us through our proposal for equity very briefly, um, which is our proposal to add equity as a column rather than a row, but for feasibility, we recommend a phased approach. The first phase would be every single month, we would always have a structured review focused on equity, looking at racial and ethnicity stratification over time, but for a given metric. And then in the long-term, the following year, we would have every single metric stratified for the overall population, our highest performing population, and our lowest two performing populations so that we're able to identify gaps. Wow. You'll see in purple um, the reference to measures that are missing. So in the quality care section, we are missing measures related to specialty and behavioral health access and leakage. And in community connection and staff experience, we're missing measures related to AHS investment in local businesses, students in the health path program and other community engagements and other things that may reflect our commitment to community connection. Um, and importantly in experience, we, there was some hope of seeing more measures related to trust and potentially something like the net promoter score. In other words, the likelihood of a staff member to recommend AHS as a place to work or get care. So these are the options before you will hand it over to Annette. So like we said, we have the option to do a bridge dashboard that was presented, but we are recommending that um, instead we delay the moving to the fiscal year 2023 dashboard for the first quarter um, of the fiscal year, continuing the FY 2022 dashboard to allow us time to to really address the gaps that Neha just pointed out, to add in those metrics that will further align us with the strategic plan and to really work on um, expanding our ability to capture and add uh, the equity stratified measures to the dashboard. Thank you guys, that was a pretty tight presentation. Um, and I, I know I heard you hurried you through it, apologies. Um, I think the one piece that we would like approval on, which I think we received, was the statement of purpose and the guiding principles, because that will really drive many of the decisions that we can make moving forward, ratios, percentiles, things like that. We can, we can use those guiding principles to make those types of decisions. Okay. That, that, thank you for asking for that. Uh, Trustees Jensen and Banerjee, so I think what, what, what uh, that we have a recommendation from our team here is 
to delay uh, to delay this until the data can catch up and the and the build can be built out. Um, can we have a discussion around that before we make any type of motions? Tracy, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, Trustee Jensen, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think that's a good idea. I appreciate the the rationale, and I would agree that we continue the current FY twenty two dashboard. Trustee Banerjee. Same here. I think we should do it once. We should do it right, and uh, and that this probably gives us. Uh, so, would it give an opportunity now as you're working on the other metrics for 2023 to bring it to QPSC or to bring it to full board? Because, like, some of the things that come to my mind are like transitions of care, like where there's sometimes accountability breakdowns. Uh, you know. Um, uh, things like, is there anything? So will we have opportunities as you're thinking about the other one to have input on it and how, like in QPS? Yes. Okay, great. Um, I really love that idea. My question for Dr. Bouquet is is really just how to get that input. And, you know, I, I, would, I would welcome um, input and suggestions on how to make the dashboard more robust. Yes, yes, ma'am. And my, my off the cuff response is, uh, uh, we only have four members on the QPSC. So I, uh, you know, it doesn't break brown for them to speak to you guys individually about their input. And also, uh, uh, I, I, I get input on the agenda, right, we can keep putting this on the agenda, as, as you guys request, and, uh, and I'd be happy to do so because this is important stuff. May, may I get comment from Mr. Frasky and Mr. Jackson on this proposal here as we kind of look at our dashboards for our board? Mark, please. Um, <clears throat> I like um, delaying um, <laughs> till we have the, the strategic plan out and vetted and discussed um, and then alignment um, of our of our dashboard with with our strategies I I really like that and um, it, the bridge could be frankly what we're doing today and just keep that going because we aren't you know we're what less than six months less than four months maybe um, so I mean I I guess I'd, I'd be in favor of the recommendation yes sir thank you Sir, yes, Thank you. I, I would concur. I, I don't know the benefit of, of rushing the uh, option one. And I think that taking what, what do they say, measure twice and cut once. And so yes, I, <laughs> I would prefer option two. Yes. Okay, got it. Um, uh, Nehar or Annette, can you move us back to the principles just to, to remind the trustees? Because we're going to put a motion on the table to um, uh, to approve. The guiding principles, and we go back one more, one more slide. So this is sort of the statement of purpose, and then on the so everyone look, trustees look at the statement of purpose, and now we'll look at the principles. Trustees, any questions on either the purpose or principles? Okay. I'm going to try to do this. Madam Clerk, are you ready? I am ready. I, I, I have a motion to approve the presented purpose and principles 
of uh, the quality true north metric selection and to delay the launch of the dashboard until the quality team uh, presents a, a final one uh, later on in this calendar year. Dr. Gupta, does that sound like an acceptable motion? Ms. Johnson? Okay. Uh, uh, can I get a second on that? I'll second. Okay, Madam Clerk, roll call us, please. All right, Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. And Trustee Jensen. Aye. Motion passes. Congratulations, Dr. Gupta, Ms. Johnson. Okay, thank you for the hard work, and, and, and Ms. Torres as well. Thank you for the hard work you guys do on that. So we somehow got that across the finish line. All right, we'll jump back in uh, to the kind of regular agenda. Uh, we've already done item A, we've done item B. We'll now go to item C, which is the medical staff reports. Uh, as everyone knows, part of our charter is to directly interact with our med staff leaders. We have Dr. Irina Williams, we have Dr. Nikki Joshi, Dr. Idris Afzali, uh, I think in the room. And how about we open it up with uh, Dr. Williams? Good evening, Dr. Williams. Good evening. Um, let me start with my report. Um, okay. So as you can see in your executive summary, um, at the last MEC, we have received the reports from a, a few different committees. Um, we have received a report from quality and safety committees um, with the highlights about um, changes and improvements to our MIDAS safety alert workflow. As you may know, MIDAS is our system to report incidents and um, sort of quality concerns um, that is anonymous. Um, we also talked about uh, root cause analysis uh, process and reporting and how we can sort of make this process even better. Um, our GME um, committee have um, uh, GME has reported as well. Um, we continue to maintain full um, accreditation status with no citations, which is a big accomplishment. So we grateful for the work that our GME is doing. Um, uh, we also learned about um, the GME committee now has a diversity, equity, and inclusion subcommittee um, with a focus on DI work um, around our residents um, and around our trainees. Um, and um, GME seems to be sort of motivated and determined to provide um, ongoing support of DI efforts um, um, to improve the diversity and the well-being of our trainees. Um, we have also received a report from the Department and of Psychiatry during the last MEC. Um, I am going to move on to our key concerns. Um, I think number one remains the staff and provider shortages due to COVID infections. We have been having multiple absences, um, and the need and cross coverage due to um, positive COVID tests in our providers and our staff. Um, some ambulatory clinics had to sort of transition to doing more telemedicine um, to um, 
account for uh, to still continue to provide patient care despite having less clinic support staff and less providers available. Some providers have been converting their in-person appointments to telemedicine appointments to still be able to provide patient care from home while being quarantined. So we, we're really trying to work around um, the surge. However, it has been challenging for our medical staff. Um, we still have some recruitment challenges um, um, and um, mainly more so in special, uh, sorry, in, in primary care rather than specialty. Um, we continue to work on trying to refine our strategy around primary care recruitment as there is definitely a need um, and our current primary care providers may be stretched thin. Um, we have also learned recently that there is a severe um, national shortage of um, IV contrast. So um, um, both medical uh, staffs uh, have worked on um, uh, creating the guidelines for uh, our health system to help manage um, radiology services during contrast services. So we do have guidelines for our trauma uh, uh, as well as our emergency services now. Uh, there may be also potential impact on ambulatory care. They're likely less significant compared to our acute care sites and emergency care departments. Um, that concludes my report um, I'm open to questions. Thank you, Dr. Williams. Trustees, any, or trustee, trustee Banerjee, trustee Banerjee, any questions of uh, Dr. Williams? Thank you, Dr. Williams, for your report. Next, mm -hmm. let's go with uh, Dr. Idris Afzali from the San Leandro Hospital Leadership uh, Committee. Good evening, Dr. Afzali. Uh, good evening, uh, trustees. Um, my uh, report is similar to the one presented at the, the board meeting, and it is included in the executive Idris. Summary. Yes. Sorry. Uh, it, it, uh, it, it, Mike went out just, uh, it went real dim. If you'll start over, if you don't mind. Sure. Good, e good evening. Oh, it's good. Um, it's good now. Okay. Okay. Uh, my report is similar to the one given to the board earlier this, this uh, month. Uh, the uh, leadership committee uh, met the 2nd of May. Um, and uh, there's some uh, important changes that I will highlight uh, in the executive summary and some, some um, uh, corrections that I made. Uh, but uh, to start off the discussion, I'd like to focus on the, on the positive points first. There's, uh, we received a report from Dr. Williams on pain medicine and moving to San Leandro, looking forward to that process completing as well as potential expansion of the services uh, to potentially a consult service uh, for inpatient as well as referrals uh, from ED and inpatient for uh, pain management. That would be uh, a great step forward. Um, the uh, other uh, uh, positive item to highlight uh, uh, is uh, key point number six, uh, the ED metrics um, <clears throat> that I've been tracking since modifying some of the uh, changes uh, in the arrival process in the ED uh, have held um, for the month of April. Uh, although the metrics slipped a little bit, there are multiple uh, uh, variables that I think are responsible. The first and foremost is the ongoing uh, staffing uh, a crisis, which uh, seems to only be getting uh, worse, unfortunately, uh, and starting to impact uh, the inpatient and ICU as well. Uh, and so we're starting to see a lot more patients boarding in, in the ED. Um, and so the overall length of stay uh, essentially stayed the same in comparison to January 20, 2022. Um, 
and while our volume dropped a tiny fraction. Uh, the rest of the metrics are, are similar to what I presented earlier in the month. There was just some uh, data that, uh, uh, new data that uh, I extracted from Epic uh, that modified those numbers. But overall, uh, those metrics are looking good and uh, I'll uh, allow you to review those. And if there's any comments, uh, we, can, um, we can go into more detail. Um, the uh, coming to concerns, uh, key point number three on, on the report, transfers between uh, San Leandro and Alameda inpatient to uh, Highland inpatient or OR. Uh, uh, the uh, concern was raised by our ICU colleagues at San Leandro uh, who were concerned about the time it took for patients to go from the inpatient uh, to Highland for critical procedures or surgeries. Uh, and uh, there's a group working on this uh, and the transfer center is also involved uh, considering uh, possibility of using the PACU or even a virtual waiting room. Uh, I guess the biggest issue is uh, sometimes patients can go to the OR, but uh, because there's no bed assigned, the patient can't exactly be discharged. So if they could be put in a virtual waiting area uh, where Highland uh, OR can access the chart, the patient can go to the OR while we continue to work on beds. And so I'm hoping that that'll come to fruition. Uh, it seems like a promising uh, concept. Uh, next item on there is the three-day antibiotic cutoff rule. This has been an ongoing topic of discussion. There was some uh, miscommunication between our hospitals team and the uh, uh, antibiotic stewardship committee. Uh, and my hope is that they will uh, communicate and come to consensus on, um, uh, on, on middle ground. Uh, if not, um, it may be on my topics for uh, next quarter's meeting as well. Um, the final uh, item on the report uh, relates to microbiology moving away from San Leandro. In the interim, I've had some uh, great updates from uh, Dr. Ng, um, who has alleviated a lot of the concerns that were raised by our hospitalist team. Uh, basically, their concern was that this will add to delays, uh, since uh, a lot of our uh, microbiology was already uh, uh, completed off-site and at Highland. Uh, the uh, uh, workflow uh, seems to be such that um, all the critical functions of microbiology, such as uh, gram stains, uh, are, are done on site, and cultures, which uh, are plated at, at San Leandro, are then sent to Highland for, for growth and, and identification, uh, which technically should not affect the length of stay for our patients. So that, that was reassuring news to have from Dr. Ng. Uh, and so hopefully, the, the overall impact of this will be uh, minimal to none. Um, and that is my presentation. I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Dr. Afzali. Uh, Trustee Banerjee. Yeah, I, I wanted to know for the three-day antibiotic rule, is that, um, so because this was like this, um, uh, stewardship meeting with the stewardship committee was missed in uh, April. Uh, now we are in the end of May, almost coming into June. Have there been, uh, is, is that rule off right now and to be used on a, I, I mean, are you waiting for a meeting to relook at that or is there, are there, um, you know, fixes now? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure we'll have a quick fix to this. I think the, uh, there's been uh, sort of concern voiced by uh, all the inpatient groups at AHS, but San Leandro hospitalists uh, uh, tend, uh, have taken the, the position that this is 
that it just doesn't make sense to them. Whereas the others have sort of voiced the concern and have found workarounds uh, for it. So uh, I think because the San Leandro uh, inpatient team kind of stands alone on this, uh, th there will not be a quick fix. It, it might take a couple of months uh, for, for discussions and, and consensus to be built um, because the antibiotic stewardship committee can't act uh, simply on their discussion with the San Leandro hospitalist team. Now, if they come to a consensus and say, okay, well, here, here's something that works better, then that would have to go through all three campuses and then through the MEC for, uh, for approval in order to be finalized. So I, I don't think there's a there's a quick fix in changing it. So it's, it still stands uh, the three day uh, cutoff rule, um, but we'll see. Okay. So, but you have workaround that is patient specific to be able to do that, or uh, what I don't understand is, and uh, that in any decision, where do with the decision-making process, but are we absolutely, absolutely centering the patient first and foremost in a policy right now that might have, might have differentiated impacts on patients? So if the other group, which has more political power, more heft, whatever, is not, is concerned about it, finding workarounds, but where is it, if it is a patient issue, how might there be solidarity to be able to like center that? So like where, who gets harmed in the process when this is like, when this decision is punted is what I want to know. Or are there fixes where it might not reach the harm that we are talking about, but this is like more about quality that, that you are able to manually do something that there, there, there yeah, are fixes not, to, I know to not avoid sense, that. But what I want to know is that this is something you are not able to avoid that. So how, um, isn't that? Yeah, it's uh, wrong to me. I don't know. I don't understand. So um, I would ask one of the other groups that are finding workarounds, like what are you doing about this and what, how are you thinking of this from an equity angle with putting the patients first? That's so a tough question. Who's doing the workaround? There are workarounds around this. Uh, technically the three-day cutoff rule only applies to antibiotics that are specifically ordered outside of order sets. So if you order any antibiotic in an order set, the rule doesn't apply. Um, and furthermore, there's uh, it, it comes off the, on, the, on their dashboard when medications are falling off the tracker. Now, uh, if there's uh, any inpatient docs that want to comment, uh, please do so because this is not my typical workflow, so I'm not the most familiar with it. Yeah. Um, but uh, there, there is a, a tracker of medications that are expiring that are uh, intended to alert the, the hospitalist before it happens. Uh, the argument is that if it doesn't make sense and there's no real benefit overall, uh, and that most of it's supposed to be caught either, either by culture results or by these uh, alerts uh, to the individual providers, then why have the rule in, in place uh, at all? Uh, and I, I don't disagree with the hospitalists. Their, their, their logic seems sound to me. And uh, from as far as I can tell, there's no other system that does this, which is why I'm helping them pursue this further. 
but the rule does exist and, and there is arguments on the other side as well because of uh, antibiotic stewardship, appropriate use uh, and uh, antibiotic resistance. There's very good arguments on the other end, but uh, I think there's a better way to do it. And I hope we can, we can find it. I, I'm not, uh, they're, they're not wrong in wanting this in place. I, I, I'm just not sure that this is the best implementation of, of the intention. You, there, there's a statement here that said hospitalist leaders were to be invited to the antibiotic stewardship meeting in April so they can speak their concerns, but this did not happen. What does that mean? Uh, it means that the hospitalist team did not get an invite to the meeting. So they were not invited. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if they were invited and you know the, the invite was missed or if they just weren't invited and overlooked, but that uh, presence at the meeting did not occur, so. Okay, so, and so I, I just, I just wanna be clear about, the presence did not occur because they didn't show up and were aware, or the, pre and, and again, you may not know the answer to that, or the presence did not occur because they were not considered on the invitation list. Because those are two I, very different things, right? Right. Yeah, and, and I think we fall somewhere in the middle because the stewardship committee says that they, they uh, wanted to invite them and they, Think that they did invite him, but the hospitals didn't see the invite. So, okay, I, I've missed many invites in over the past couple of months. But okay, so it sounds like there's some change management opportunity here, is what I would say. And right. and and from our perspective, I th I think what, what what we want is variance reduction, right? We don't want the San Leandro hospital to function different vis-a-vis -vis antibiotics than Highland and Alameda. So I think there I think there's a great opportunity to behave standardly, if you will, as a system. And, and, and uh, who owns this decision-making? This is probably from clinical decision-making, this probably, and, and I know she's not, in the, she's not in the room this evening, but isn't this the chief, does this belong to the house of the chief medical officer? Adris? I'm not sure. Okay, so clarity on who, who, who guides this. So I, I think uh, the antibiotic stewardship media uh, committee probably has some opportunity to make sure stakeholder analysis was considered given that this given that this is the third month in a row that we've seen this agreed okay Thank, thanks for the nuance on that and like you said standard procedure protocol and i know that often when standard procedure protocol is system-wide happens that there's pushback in different parts of the system that happens too, and uh, making sure that uh, like the best patient-centered solution is the one that is chosen. Yeah, and, and, and as Eisenhower said, those who plan the battle don't battle the plan. So I think there's a, some opportunity there. So um, thank you for your report, Dr. Sali. Thank you. Um, uh, Dr. Joshi, good evening. Good evening. Thank you, everyone, for having me on. Um, I'd like to start with my report with quality and patient safety. So as Dr. Williams mentioned, uh, we got updates that our new Midas system will allow us to enter reports from Epic. I really want to thank Annette and her team for doing this. Midas itself has not changed, but this simple fix allows us to much more easily access Midas, which means that patient safety 
reports can be more easily filed. There is a lot of data that automatically gets put into the report, avoiding redundancy and errors such as patient name, MR, date. So really want to highlight that this upgrade is not a minor one. It's a big deal, really good for our system. Uh, I really want to thank um, Dr. Lofton for the beginning groundwork implementing the Nursing Quality Council. I'm very excited. I know many clinicians are excited to hear about this and thankful for the work that has already been put into it and looking forward to what will come of it. Again, very much patient safety facing. Um, Alameda Hospital, we have done a lot of great work for sepsis over the last um, more than a year. And I actually think this is the first time we're mentioning it at the board trustees level. So I really wanna highlight that we have put together a robust group involving pharmacy and lab, ED, critical care, inpatient docs, ED docs, nurses, et cetera, uh, to look at sepsis. And we really look at sepsis fallouts at a granular level. Uh, we're gonna be expanding actually to make our committee include San Leandro because a lot of the providers um, overlap. And in fact, a lot of the system leaders like pharmacy look at both hospitals. So we're hoping that in combining this meeting, we can avoid redundancy, but uh, just continue to make gains in patient safety. So sepsis, we're doing really great. Our fallouts are reducing, but we still maintain a highly critical eye on every fallout. Operations. Um, we've Dr. Had Jesse, can you, can you remind everyone what the term fallout means? Oh, sure. Uh, so um, there are people in this meeting who can much better explain um, what a fallout specifically is with regards to sepsis, but basically CMS has guidelines. Um, for example, when it comes to sepsis, antibiotics, uh, I'm sorry, blood cultures should be drawn before antibiotics are being administered. If a, an initial lactate is high, a repeat lactate needs to be drawn within a certain time interval. So these um, metrics are hard, especially in the pandemic with staffing issues, um, when sepsis is not always so obvious as the, as the primary presenting chief complaint. It, it's not always easy to meet these metrics. Some of these metrics are also not necessarily proven to be clinically applicable, although that's a different aside because we're still held to these standards. So um, our charts get audited and those charts, if they if we miss the mark in terms of meeting a metric, that is considered a fallout. Uh, so therefore fallouts happen for different reasons. Got it, thank you. You're welcome. Um, okay, operations, so we've had um, issues with throughput, which um, now our current issue of throughput is because of this severe upswing in COVID that we've seen in the last few days with regards to staffing shortages. We've had a few outbreaks of COVID in some of our nursing homes, which has again put us in that position we were in in January, where our admitted patients may be medically stabilized, but we are unable to discharge them to a nursing home. So they stay in the hospital, which has downstream impact on throughput. Um, but throughput in the last few weeks had also been impacted because we had inconsistent coverage in echocardiography, and that's my bullet number two. I'm happy to say that um, that has been addressed. We are now back to six days a week of echo coverage at Alameda Hospital. We had throughput issues related to staffing ultrasound and vascular uh, MRI here and there. So it's really impacted our throughput, and what it's made us realize is that we have meetings between the physicians and the nurse leaders, but when we dive deep into why do we have throughput issues, the answer is very complicated and often related to systems issues that I think often are staffing related, which I think, again, is a consequence of the ongoing pandemic. 
but we continue to work with that. And I'm happy that we are able to partner with nursing and with the inpatient docs for that. Uh, the transfer center with Huron has been doing a lot of hard work to solidify the many workflows that we have. Um, uh, one of the workflows that still needs to be worked upon is something that Dr. Zali touched upon, which is transfers for patients to Highland who may need procedures such as permacath or a G2 placed, um, such as what TAF's Dr. Riquet's group does. Uh, but also what's impacted Alameda Hospital is throughput and transfers related to critically ill patients who need a subspecialty that's not available at Alameda Hospital. The solution that has been identified is that the patient would go to a PACU bed. The reality, however, is again, comes down to constraints in space staffing. So we appreciate that Huron is working with us to work on that. And we know that we have the support of all the important leaders, including Dr. Lofton, uh, Teresa Cooper at Highland to work and to make this happen. So that dialogue still continues. Strengths, so we had a presentation of our system-wide continuing medical education program, which is led by Dr. Resner. Uh, she's done a great job. Uh, they recently have approval to have a manager to work uh, within her group to really help expand the activities that are there. CME is available for clinicians. We are all required to have a certain number of hours in a year by our accrediting bodies, um, such as for us, the American College of Emergency Physicians. Um, what Dr. Resner has really pushed hard to do is that if a CME activity happens, to make sure that all the clinicians are given information on it. So there's a link on the intranet that gives information on this. She also works very hard with everybody who proposes a CME activity to see, okay, this topic is maybe pediatric focused, but is there a component that perhaps the OBGYN doctors would be interested? Is there a component that internal medicine would be interested in? What can we do to make this broadly applicable for HS as a whole? So I really appreciate the leadership she has shown there. Opportunities. <clears throat> we have identified that biomed is definitely an area of opportunity where we can improve as a system. Um, I'm happy to say that last week, um, myself and Ormond Salters, one of the nurse leaders at Alameda, we had a meeting with some of the leadership at, with Agility. Earlier this week, we had a meeting with uh, Doug Johnson, who's the interim VP over um, supply chain. So I'm glad that we're gaining a better understanding of what's where we are, and we're able to have really good dialogue about where we want to go and how to make that happen. So it's an opportunity and I look forward to the work that we will be able to do there. Uh, we had our culture of safety survey that um, Darshan Greenwald teams has been working with us. We're at the point where um, certain groups, if they were given the survey is able to do debriefings. So look forward to that. Also looking forward to uh, working with Darshan and her team about how to continue to um, uh, work with her about making this uh, useful for the uh, clinicians and the providers. Um, I touched upon interfacility transfers. And then in terms of professionalism standards committee, uh, for the AH med staff, we will be working with the AHS med staff, so with Dr. Williams, in standing up this committee. And we have a training set up with the leaders of the PACE program, which is a professionalism program out um, down from UC Davis. So we're excited that this has already been scheduled and we look forward to training 
clinicians who are interested in getting specialty training on professionalism. Key concerns. Uh, so Dr. Williams mentioned the global contrast media shortage, but if I can just add a little bit more uh, color to this, this contrast shortage is of really, really epic apocalyptic proportions. Um, thankfully, the factory which makes this, which is in Shanghai, has able to resume their production. But for a long time, they stopped because of the COVID outbreak that happened there. They are our main supplier in the entire world of contrast that we use. We use this for CT studies, STEMI cath lab, our trauma patients. So for AHS being who we are, not you know facing the fact that we could have been without this was could have been hugely impactful for patient care. Uh, we were able to get a robust team of our pharmacy leaders, radiology leaders, um, clinicians across the systems to get together to first not only come up with clinical guidelines of how to minimize use, but actually to create a dashboard to account for the contrast that we have. And let me tell you, how do you find out how much contrast we have in this system is a very complex uh, answer, but we were able to get to the heart of that. Um, we are working with compliance of the 2030 seismic requirements and continue to work with Deb Stebbins and her group on that. Um, and then I'll skip to the last point, leadership turnover. Uh, this, uh, this specifically uh, corresponds to our nursing leadership turnover. Uh, I spoke on this two weeks ago at the Board of Trustees, so I won't speak as long about it, but we need to support our nurse leaders. We need to identify strong leaders within our system, foster them, mentor them, keep them so that we can continue to retain the knowledge that is here. I believe in that very strongly and um, I hope that we can, we can do that. There are challenges, but I know that we can overcome them. And that's the end of my report, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Joshi. Trustee Banerjee, any questions of Dr. Joshi? I think um, really great to hear about all the education work that's happening and also the sepsis um, you know, team that's doing that work. Are there ways in which, like, are there mechanisms for some of these sharings to happen? Um, I know some, you said education was system-wide, but like these bright spots of certain things that you're doing with um, sepsis prevention and care, does, are there, like, does that disseminate through the system to other facilities as well? How, how does that happen? So Opportunities to share what you're doing. With the three acute hospitals, so Alameda and San Leander, once we have the system or once we have the joint meeting going forward, that'll be very easy to share. And then in terms of Highland, which has its own challenges, they have a quarterly sepsis meeting that is held uh, with the quality team where we do a lot of sharing of best practices and discussions as to how to overcome barriers. And earlier this week, we actually had a meeting with um, some of the CMS leaders to get a better understanding of our metrics. So under our quality team guidance, we have a lot of opportunities to share system-wide, our challenges and our wins. Thank you, Dr. Joshi. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. Joshi, uh, a, a couple comments. I know you're pretty deeply involved with the inter-facility transfers. Uh, your, your colleague, Dr. Afzali, made mention of some uh, concepts such as a virtual waiting room. What, what is the way in, the, in which these ideas, which are generated from the, quote, Gemba, are, are stewarded for like, you know, has that discussion, has that recommendation, uh, is that within your purview? Have you understood that? 
Yeah, so what I would say is that Ryan DeGive, who is the head of the transfer center, is really knee-deep involved in almost all of these meetings um, because the transfer center really um, gets popped up in, in so many different ways. And he's very much working with Huron to help to facilitate this understanding of what to do for critically ill patients from the community hospital into Highland. So they have um, had a few meetings where they have talked through the pain points. They have a few case examples of real patient situations where there were challenges and sort of dissecting through what happened in this particular example that led to a delay. How do we address that delay? It also requires partnering with Dr. English and the EPIC team, because as Dr. Avzali mentioned, a lot of this is um, making sure that EMR is set up to help us as well. Uh, there's nothing worse than literally having the patient physically in front of you and then not being able to do anything for that. Mm. Um, so we are um, in the process of executing those things to make it real. And then the big other piece is, of course, the nursing leaders. And so having their expertise to make sure that they are, that we're not asking nurses to do things that are out of their license, that it makes sense for their workflows as well. What is your person, sorry, I'll throw some hard ones at you. What's your personal opinion on both the direction and the speed of change on this issue of interfacility transfers? Does it feel like it's going in the right direction and at the right speed? It's definitely going in the right direction. Great. Mm -hmm. um, I will say it's not going in the right speed because it's, it's um, I mean, the fact that right now I could have a patient in the Alameda ED who needs to go over and there are significant challenges. So to say it's not going at the right speed, it's really not a, like, I, I can't blame a single person for this. There's so much complication and nuance to this issue. Uh, you know, for example, Highland ED has been 30 plus patients in the waiting room over these last few days. We have real throughput issues in our system. But at the end of the day, if there's a sick patient at Alameda or San Leandro and they can be made better because of a specialist who's at Highland, we gotta do whatever it takes to get that patient over. So the will is there, the understanding is there. We just have to make it happen. And, and I think this issue is important for Dr. Abzali and I to raise because even though we're not inpatient doctors, we're ED doctors, this significantly impacts us because if I can't admit patients to the inpatient at Alameda Hospital because they're concerned that the patient may need a specialty uh, that we don't have, it's gonna impact my throughput. Um, what we really need though to get this issue solved is a finalized pathway to how to get to that PACU bed. But this pandemic makes staffing very, very challenging. I know I'm talking circularly. No, 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 you're not. In your opinion, who owns that process? I think the process, I think it's the nursing leaders who ultimately have the, um, they are the ones who have to be in agreement with what we decide. Because a doctor, um, like a neurosurgeon, let's say if it's a neurosurgical issue, can go to the OR, they can take care of the patient, but then they leave. But it's the nurse who's next to that patient the rest of the time. They're there in the beginning, pre-op, during the OR, afterwards. And it, we have to go by what is there with the unions. We have to go by what is there by law, like these nursing ratios. So the doctors, we can say whatever we want, but it is really important that our nurse leader partners, um, that we work with them. 
Got it. And again, these are not comments made in the negative at all, but it's a it's real. They are our equal partners. Yeah, as we try to say, all feedback's a gift, right? Especially the painful stuff. Um, so I think trying to bring it up is important. And last kind of observation. Uh, one thing that I don't notice in your report or in Dr. Williams's report on key issues, I don't see mention of the three-day antibiotic rule. So I guess my question is, has have you, the hospitalists under your charge made this an issue of a complaint? I'm just trying to understand the variance. Like there's some common themes amongst all three of you, which are transfer center staffing. That, and I'm, a, I'm I, I like to strive to look well, where's the variance. Have you heard have, from your hospitalists? colleagues, have you heard issues related to three-day antibiotic rule? I have, but uh, it was only when I specifically asked, you know, are you having issues with the three-day rule? And what it, what they had said to me was they were not happy that this happened, but that when they order antibiotics, it's now part of their sort of mental checklist to consider if they need to change the days of antibiotics. And um, I think there's also the idea that if you use antibiotics per the order sets, then the, then the days are pre-selected for whatever is appropriate. So what that means is that not every antibiotic is defaulting to three days. Got it. Okay. Again, I think we have a lot of system opportunity on this issue about, about messaging and doing that. Dr. Williams, any comment from your hospitalist? Yeah. So um, when this came up at the MEC, um, I offered assistance in trying to sort of support our hospitalists and make sure that their 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 voice is being heard. However, um, what was communicated to me is that they're comfortable handling this um, in um, sort of independently of the medical staff leadership. Um, so um, that's sort of where we left it. Got it. I think there's probably opportunity for discussion amongst the hospitalists, amongst three hospitals, and their interface with the antibiotics stewardship committee. Okay. Thank you for your report, Chiefs of Staff. Uh, thank you for using your voice. With that, we'll close out um, uh, the item C, the report discussion for medical staff reports. Next, we'll go, we have some written reports from patient safety, regulatory affairs, and quality. Of course, this is led by uh, Anna Torres, our VP of quality, Darshan Graywall, our system director of patient safety, Nilda Perez, our system director of regulatory affairs, and Annette Johnson, who we've already seen this evening for our quality analytics director. We chose it as our written report this evening because uh, we didn't know about quorum and the whole thing. Uh, Trustee Banerjee, it's a nicely, nicely, nice group of written reports right there, which uh, I'm, 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 I'm uh, so happy about the evolution of these reports. They're very, it's uh, so readable uh, and, and they're more and more digestible, if you will. So uh, do you have any questions, Trustee Banerjee? of our, our quality team on their report submitted? Comments really. I mean, again, just very clear reports yeah. and um, just like hits the right point, says like what the month-to-month trends are, talks about, uh, you know, um, what some of the issues are. So I uh, really appreciate how much tighter um, they've become. And the site visits, the reportable events, like all of that to be able to see that as a snapshot, um, all of it is really helpful. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee. Uh, so I'll just keep this as a simple question to our VP quality, Ms. Torres. 
Ms. Torres, apart from the reports, is there anything particular you need us to understand this evening from your purview? Anything to call out that we need to understand within the reports? Uh, no, nothing that stands out. Okay. Uh, I guess just the one big thing that, that uh, uh, does stand out to me is we're still in the window. We're sorry, we are now in the window for the Joint Commission to come to Alameda Hospital. Alameda Everyone Hospital. remembers we have two separate medical licenses. San Leandro and Highland are on one, Alameda's on another. Ms. Perez, can you give commentary on projection for arrival of the Joint Commission at um, Alameda Hospital? And my second question, you know, I ask you every year, are we ready? Okay, uh, to your first question, um, we were notified two weeks ago uh, by the Joint Commission that our survey has been scheduled. So when that is, once we hear that, we can expect them anytime within the next 30 days to, you know, unless some delay happens in the next 90 days. I anticipate we will see them after the Memorial Weekend holiday. Um, still evaluating the pandemic numbers as they change. There is a little bit of a, I heard from the state yesterday and I assume the Joint Commission is feeling likewise, that they're concerned about people congregating and being social during the Memorial Day weekend. And then we will see an effect in the next two weeks after that. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's almost a little bit of a, hesitation for anyone to make plans beyond the Memorial Day weekend, but that's the soonest I would expect them. Yes, ma'am. And, and then in terms of our, uh, um, our readiness, I think we've made very good progress. I mean, I don't feel that we're ever 100% ready. We are robustly validating, going back and rounding with our leaders that our leaders are meeting and doing important work. We're still seeing the low hanging fruit that you know, we'll be there, we'll see it, we'll, we'll discuss it, they, that we will hear there's a correction, we will come back, we will see that again. And, and my message yesterday to the um, uh, Alameda leadership and providers was that active daily management, that consistency and that feedback loop is really key and crucial to just kind of having a constant preparedness state. Yes, so um, I, I'm hoping, and I, there was good response to that, so we're still, we will be continuing to echo that message and um, support them. Yes, ma'am. Would you project, is this gonna be an old school five day visit or, or, or has the TJC moved to, uh, you know, it used to be five days all the time, right? Is it, what, what are you projecting? Based on our size, I would expect a three day visit if they come concurrent, concurrently with the uh, patient care uh, survey team along with the leadership, life safety and engineering team. What I can tell this group is that um, the joint commission is having some difficulty uh, we alluded to staffing challenges. Uh, they are similarly having some difficulty with assembling their survey teams. And it would not be um, a, a, a surprise that if they were to send the survey team separate and then send the engineer separate. So it could be a total of four days in a week okay. or, or, lo or longer. Um, yes, so um, it, it could be anywhere from four to five days if they do not arrive. They are, they are doing some um, creative scheduling where they could even show up one week and then show up and uh, part of the team will show up one week and the other part will turn show up the next week. Yes, ma'am. And to the team, I, I was covering Alameda last week. I saw you guys, I, I saw a lot of activity there. So I know you guys are in a constant state of preparation. So, you know, applause and, 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 and support of you guys. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll reiterate the obvious to you is that uh, this board is available um, when the joint commission comes. So please don't hesitate to call us, particularly the, the QPSC committee uh, members who know this, 
and, and in, in, in particular, all of us, all four of us, of course, but Trustee Jensen, of course, is, is, a, is an Alameda, but uh, do not hesitate, hesitate to call any and or all of us when they come uh, for, for uh, intake or outtake meetings. Will not hesitate. Thank you, Trustee Burkett. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Okay. Uh, Trustee Banerjee, comments, madam? Um, no, I know okay. the kind of um, preparation that's going on and just, you know, our best to the team. Yep. You know how hard folks are working. Yep. And that we'll clear our deck for yep. the yeah, joint commission when they come. So whether it's the exit meeting or any other time that they are there, we will be there. So please let us know. Thank you, quality team, as always. With that, we'll close item E and we'll go to kind of the headliner this evening, item F. As everyone knows, we have a standard uh, work, which is to bring a quality improvement project here. This evening, we're gonna hear about, uh, uh, the, the words may not mean a lot to the crew, but uh, the team will explain. It's called BIRADS to biopsy. So uh, the team's gonna explain what that means, BIRADS. We have Gary Blodger, who's our outreach specialist at Village Connect. We have Dr. Patricia Fu, always great to see Dr. Fu, who's our interim division chief of primary care. We have Jackie Mungo, who's the CEO of the Healing Institute Global Network. Good evening, good evening to all of you guys. Um, we have about 15 minutes of presentation and then we'll, we'll open it up for any questions. So welcome, and I think the, the, the podium jurors. Good evening. Good evening. Um, first, we wanna thank you again for offering us this opportunity to present the work that we've uh, begun. I actually also want to comment, sir, on the opening statement that you had with regard to public health emergencies and the uh, tra travesty that took place yesterday. How you um, eloquently spoke about that really hit home uh, prior to you going into closed session. And I, I truly appreciate that. So um, you, just sir. wanted to put that on the record. Um, so yeah, at Alameda Health, we are the uh, community collaborative um, excuse me, let me get that correct. We are the Cancer Community Collaborative, and we have been doing work with regards to uh, discrepancies and uh, inequities with regards to cancer care. Uh, in particularly, we'd like to discuss today um, what we've seen with regards to um, breast cancer. And if we can go to the next um, slide, please. So what we've come to find to be our problem statement was that black patients who completed diagnostics regarding mammograms with BIRADS of four or five resulted at AHS uh, had a nine and a half day delay, right? in the time from the biopsy compared to white patients. As you see uh, via the statistics we presented, the black patients had 20 days, um, whereas white patients had 11 and a half days. Uh, BIRADS are a scoring system used by the radiologists, and I'm sure this is like uh, um, speaking to you. you know, well, no, no, sir. We're, we're speaking yeah. to a public audience. And I appreciate you. You, you, yeah, you, you get to help remind us what this means. I, I truly wish to um, elaborate on the fact that it is a scoring system, right? And so what we've come to find that BIRADS with uh, suspicious findings were 20 to 35% chance of cancer, indicating a 20 to 35% chance of cancer. Those with a BIRAD reading of five had a high suspicion of 95% uh, chance of cancer. So this is a, um, a report that we've uh, come across from the National Consortium of Breast 
uh, breast center. And the medium time is seven days, the turnaround time. So if you look at the black patient turnaround time of 20 days in AHS, and you see the white patient time of 11.5 days at AHS, with the National Consortium of Breast Centers saying that seven days is the medium, we find that there is a problem. And now um, we go to the next slide. We'd like to indicate that this is a national representation of mortality, right, Re regarding Black patients. So non-Hispanic Black patients, persons uh, experience a higher mortality rate with regards to breast cancer compared to white patients. The graph is clearly indicative of this particular fact. But in Alameda County, black residents experience a higher incidence of breast cancer than any other racial ethnic group. And we find that to be quite alarming and cause for concern. As we move to our next slide, we appreciate again, the opportunity for you to allow us to present. Let me just um, say that this particular slide is in um, the deck and you can refer to it later for specific identification, but we are composed of community members, right? And then also we have Alameda Health uh, System members, which include the ambulatory leadership, the grant leadership, et cetera, which is again, um, self-identifiable when you refer to it at a later, a later point in time. And I'm very proud to be associated with this particular group as a community member. I'm gonna ask that we move to the uh, next slide. So what we did in approaching this work was to frame our approach, our, our, our lens of view around the theory of groundwater lake fish. If you would for me, please just um, envision walking and uh, you're in, nearing a body of water and you see a dead fish, right? Then you take the fish and you try to determine the cause of its demise and you maybe even uh, resuscitate and put the fish back into the lake. But then the further down the lake you go, you find more and more um, patients, excuse me, we're utilizing the fish as a, a, an example of patient. You find more and more fish um, in the same uh, condition in the lake. And then you begin to think to yourself, wow, this must not be a fish and or patient related matter. It simply might be something that is attributed to the lake. So as you start to look at the lake, you begin to determine this may be part of the causation that is causing our fish to have these mortality rates, right? And then you um, look at it from the perspective of the lake being the processes of uh, Alameda Health System uh, with regards to cancer care. The, uh, the concern really becomes, is this body of water simply representative of a particular problem or are there pollutants in this lake that are impacting the fish, our patients further downstream causing mortality disparities and inequities, right? Um, but then you also find that as we move further up the system, the groundwater feeds into the lake, which actually feeds 
several bodies of water, several other lake bodies of water and streams, which then again um, caused the pollutants to filter downstream. Our framework is um, asking us to take a look at this from the perspective of looking at the groundwater. The groundwater is indicative of systemic racism. It's indic indicative of policies and processes you know, that, that filter downstream into the AHS process of cancer care clinic and um, other aspects and navigation, et cetera. And then initially wind up giving those high rates that I showed earlier as um, an impact to our fish, literally our patients. What we would like to do is to um, find ways to identify and impact this system from a groundwater perspective, systemic racism. What we've, what we've come to find in our um, research was that there were uh, um, prior navigation systems which were um, dependent um, or reporting to Every Woman Counts, which is the cancer detection program, right? They, they track abnormal mammograms. So there was a tracking and there was a navigation process. But then in, I believe, June of 2019, this um, system of tracking um, mammography was um, displaced. It, it, was, it ceased to exist. And basically at that point in time, the question became, well, for two years when it restarted, who was tracking? Who was reporting? Where was this system and why was it not in place? Particularly as it was proven that this system was beneficial to women of color in terms of assisting them through and navigating them through a process. And when we look at the um, situation with AHS now, we find that there is no longer a complete cancer uh, navigation process that totally um, follows our patients, particularly our women of color. Um, and we're, we're doing our study unapologetically black. So we're, we'll say our black patients, uh, women of color that, um, so if, if those disparities exist and uh, the 20 versus 11.5 days are, are evident of conditions now, what were they primarily when we had a navigation system in place? And then also the concern is when that uh, system was not in place, as you see, tracking ended in 2019. So what was going on then when there was no, no navigation, no tracking, no, no uh, tracking of, uh, you know, uh, BIRAD four and five. So how do we justify that not being in place? And then um, were there not any red flags red risen? Because if I'm not mistaken, this is um, supposedly with AHS to be reported through the Department of Public Health. If I get my, if I have my memory correct, forgive me. I'm doing it from a layman's perspective. However, um, when we look at other aspects of this, um, we see that navigators definitely improve the quality of care for women of color with regards to 
breast clinic appointments, radiology, mammography, and, and, and breast cancer as a whole, right? So if they are not in place, and we're talking about um, previously, I heard you guys referring to metrics and dashboards and, and you know, these things, if they, they were in place, why weren't these things notified and rectified back in 2019? Why was there an absence and still a, a low level of navigation with regards to assisting our, our uh, patients of color? And why do these disparities exist? I'm gonna stop there and allow my uh, other teammates to continue with the presentation. And I thank you again for your time. Thank you so much, Gary. So um, I think Gary really highlighted how our goal is to move further and further into the groundwater. Um, what, what I wanna now present is some of the work we've done, which really sits as, at the lake level. So as we go through it, um, please just keep in mind that um, while we are very proud of the work we're doing, we're hoping to go further deeper. Um, so uh, I wanted to just orient everyone to the previous standard of how patients were scheduled for a breast biopsy after receiving a diagnostic mammogram that was suspicious for cancer. So in the previous workflow, the patient would complete their diagnostic mammogram, the radiologist would discuss the results at the time of um, completing the mammogram and recommend a breast biopsy. The patient would th then go home and wait for a call from the radiology team to schedule their biopsy. They would then get a call by radiology. And um, as you might imagine, all of these multiple steps led to um, a high no-show rate, a low completion rate, and the prolonged time to completion that we already talked about. So what did we do? So we um, picked up on the really pioneering work that was begun in 2018 by uh, a collaboration between Breast Clinic and Radiology. Um, to change the workflow so that patients could schedule their breast biopsy appointment immediately after completing their diagnostic mammogram and, and getting their results. Um, in terms of barriers we faced, I think Gary has already spoken quite eloquently about um, the lack of ongoing tracking and navigation services. And I think, um, quite frankly, we were late in including our community members into the process of designing what this intervention looked like, which is something we're now working on um, doing better. In terms of our successes, um, you know, I think we had an amazing multidisciplinary team really led by our radiology colleagues. Um, we have some results, which I'll share in a second, and a lot of anecdotal um, comments of appreciation from patients who really wanted to just walk, uh, leave AHS knowing what the next step was and having an appointment in hand. So again, this, is, this was the new um, workflow that was um, tested in the fourth quarter of 2021. So again, the radiologist discusses the result with the patient. Instead of the patient going home and waiting for a call from the radiology team, the patient would then go to the front desk, get their appointment scheduled for a breast biopsy, and then go home um, knowing when they needed to come back to complete the biopsy. Um, and what, we'll, what we found and what I'll show you is that we found a lower no-show rate, improved completion rate, faster time to completion, and then the patient feedback that I mentioned before. Um, I think one important thing that we don't um, address fully with this intervention is really acknowledging the sort of continuous emotional journey that a patient goes through along this process. Um, and that's something that I think I wanna highlight as part of what we're hoping to address in the future. 
So what was the result of this change in the workflow? Here you'll see a graph showing the quarterly um, median days from BioRads 4.5 to breast biopsy, going back to the third quarter of 2020. Um, here, this black line is just indicative that we rolled out our intervention sort of one month in, I think, to the quarter, fourth quarter of 2021. So these results to the right of the black line are um, with the new workflow in place. Um, and although I think it's not the clearest of trends, because as you can see below, the number of patients is quite small, um, we felt um, pretty satisfied with the fact that we did see a decrease in the median time from BIRADS 4.5 to breast biopsy especially for our black patients. Um, and to note that we also saw improvements for our white patients and patients identifying as um, other race, which um, largely correlates with our Latinx population. Um, the results I would say, um, although really promising on this slide, of course, are always a little bit more complicated. So I also wanted to share um, a different way of looking at this metric, which is the percent of patients who completed their be breast biopsy within 14 days of receiving their diagnostic mammogram result. So again, there's a lot of variation because the numbers are quite small. Um, but I think what you will see is that with this new workflow, I do think there is a um, trend towards improved rates of completion within that 14 day period although I think it's very apparent that we still have a lot of room to grow. And in this view, there's actually still a gap um, for our black patients compared to our white patients, um, although the median time was um, improved and that gap had closed. So in terms of this particular workflow change, um, a, a big shout out and thank you to um, Tatiana Thomas and the entire team over at Radiology who have incorporated this workflow into their standard work. We're working on establishing, and I've already done the first iteration of a quarterly data report from radiology to our cancer collaborative to continue to monitor progress. Um, this workflow is uh, going to be expanded to San Leandro Hospital, as I understand it, um, next month. And uh, the radiology department has also hired a part-time mammography coordinator to help um, reinstate some of the tracking that was previously done um, and that was found to be successful. And with that, I'll turn it over to Jackie. Good evening. Thank you, Patricia. So this picture actually shows that this is actually the tip of the iceberg where we are right now. We've actually done a lot of work, but you see underneath, we have a lot more work to do. Um, can you go to the next slide? Gary, so he eloquently put, uh, gave us the description of the fish, the lake, and so what's next in our hopes? You know, um, in going through this process, I'm actually really proud of the work that we've done so far, and especially in the uh, mammography area. I actually worked on that team, and we see that we can make a change in some of the work that we do if we start to look at it differently. We ultimately want to dig, dig deeper into the groundwater because that is where we feel like is the answers to everything to basically start there. And then our ultimate goal is to really take good care of the patient, make sure that they feel that they have the best care possible and also that they feel that they're getting the best care. So this is where um, we plan to go. This is our hopes. And um, with the team that we have and a lot of the members are on this uh, call or on the Zoom, 
I'm sure that we can get there. Next slide. So we just wanna say thanks to our entire team. We have a, a good team of, and we've done so many things so far, as you can see, we've um, did town halls and um, we just have a good work group team. And so we just wanna say thank you to our entire team and thank you to all of you who are on here this evening to listen to our presentation. Thank you so much. Trustee Banerjee, execs, other leaders, any questions or comments from this team who presented this? I'll, I'll invite um, members of the HERI committee who are here to share, but I was at the last meeting um, joining, uh, rejoining HERI after almost two years. And it was a deeper discussion. And I think um, Ms. Zanetta, uh, Zanetta um, Harper, Ms. Harper gave such a candid feedback about like how some of these things fall by the wayside. Um, and, you know, I would just give you an opportunity right now, Ms. Harper, if you wanted to share anything um, with the folks who are here from your um, perspective. Um, thank you, Trustee Banjoji. Yeah, I did not want to put you on a spot, but only oh. if you're willing. I just want to say thank you, um, number one, um, for your graciousness and um, hearing our perspective and our experience and that's that all the attendees here. Um, it's been very difficult work. Um, the groundwater is what it is. It's, it's, we have a slide in which the, the groundwater is depicted as being actually very dirty. And um, that is representative of the pollutants, but it's also representative of the outcomes if we do not really address the groundwater for what it is. I am a, a breast cancer navigator. I've been doing this work since 2012. It's a program that not only I love, but uh, my former coworkers loved. And um, it's gone. It has been um, in, in for a couple of years now, if, if I were to speak about it um, in terms of its effectiveness, its investment. And all I would say is that um, if we're gonna be patient centric, let's stop taking them out of the center or just leaving them in the center and place our patients at the helm. Um, they are more than capable of letting us know what they need. Um, I do believe in an and both approach. I do not like deficit minded approaches. And I think that that has been a hindrance to us and it has resulted in several scarcity models that need not be. So I would hope that um, you will join our efforts and supporting us and helping us to reimagine, strengthen, and bring back a program that is absolutely fundamental to the health of our patient in ways that are bigger, better, innovative, and inclusive. And so um, I, again, wanna thank you for your time and a special thank you to you, Trustee Banjerjee, for recognizing me and you all have a blessed evening. Thank you so much, Ms. Harper. Anyone else from Hedy wanted to share? I'll, I'll share a little bit after. All right, Trustee Banerjee. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, this is when we spoke um, about the three-day protocol or something like that. I think what I wanted to say again and again is every decision we take or moving something is 
uh, we just have to keep saying if it's good for the patient ultimately, and this is standard protocol, so be it. But we see things that, uh, so as long as we are putting the patient needs that the, the accountabilities are first and foremost to the patients, that, that, that is how it should go. I'm especially thinking very much about Dr. Mark Hui today. Um, and, um, you know, with deep respect and honor um, for the dedicated service that she brought and of compassion that she brought to, to this work. And I think that sometimes we relegate equity or we relegate quality to the that small and mighty teams that do it. And it has to be all of our work, everyone, every decision. And to ask like, how are our, sometimes when you talk about social determinants of health or something like that, it sounds so esoteric. And you say, well, income, like education, like what we are clinicians, what can we do about that? Yes, and thankfully there'll be programs that we will be working with as an anchor institution, but there are structural determinants such as implicit bias, such as homophobia, such as you know racism, pure and simple, that we think that, hey, uh, we don't think we, we control for the fact that certain population groups just happen to be sicker. And we think that that's normal. We, we think that that is what it is. So every chair, every chief, every person who has even the littlest bit of privilege and power in this system, if you're thinking about like, what, I, what, what are the structures here that are actually created differentiated experiences for our patients? Because I can tell you this, that sometimes when you have to admit a patient in this system, you need a friend. You need to know like, hey, which place should I go to? Like, who should I go to? That should not happen over here. And I will stop there because they, we, each one of us, and there is, let us like, I think what we just need to ask ourselves is this, more as an inquiry, as a self-reflection, because, you know, uh, this is a lifelong journey, and I, we are. All, this is not finger pointing at anybody because we are all guilty of doing this in many spheres of our life. So this is not you're better, I'm better. Who it is? We all have like so lots of room to grow, but when we have to take a decision whether like do we value our comfort or do we value justice and health equity? Which side do we stand on is something that I think we should all ask ourselves, that if we come to a crux of a decision about change, there's always when you delay putting patient-centeredness in it, when you delay doing that, that structure, that's a hallmark of structural racism. When you say, yeah, we care about patients, but you know what? Next year, we'll call them in and ask them how to co-design with them. That's a hallmark of structural racism. When we think about the ways in which we say, oh my gosh, we, we you know, because our patients don't have the bandwidth to check out, resign from their jobs, to find other jobs, because if you're hungry today, you don't have a room to check out. Like you are, that's where you are. So I hope very much that as we think about our strategic plan, the ethos of it 
the mission of it, when people say we are very mission driven, show us how you're mission driven. Please show us, don't tell us, show us. Thank you. Thank you for those words, Trustee Banerjee. Um, team, thank you very much for reporting on this uh, important subject for, for all our, our women who uh, are getting screened for breast cancer and the implications uh, we discussed here. With that, we'll close out item F. Item G is the planning calendar and issue tracking. I will put one issue out for the for the trustees at large. Uh, 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 as we've as we've um, approved a strategic plan with new pillars, um, uh, uh, I had a discussion with a, a a decently intelligent executive who made a comment about aligning our uh, our strategic pillars with the names of the committees. So it sort of begs the question. Do we evolve this to the quality care committee? Do we evolve the finance committee to the sustainability committee? Do we evolve the HR committee to the staff and position experience committee? Do we create a committee for uh, our uh, for community where we can discuss things like this as we interface with the community? That's just food for thought, Trustee Banerjee. We'll have that discussion probably also um, at the full board as well, okay? Uh, planning calendar is, uh, we're still, sticking on our regular meetings. We are only dark in December. Um, uh, so we will have a, a meeting again in June, July, August, September, October, November. So uh, with that, I'll close item G. Uh, we've already done closed session. Uh, audience, thank you for attending. This closes uh, the May 25th, 2022 QPSC uh, with two minutes to spare. Everyone have a great evening and good night.